I'm ready right now. Are you ready? Turn in your Bibles this morning, please, to Psalm chapter 23. We don't always follow the holidays on our Sunday messages. And so uh, we're going to do that again this morning. We're not going to follow the tradition of doing an Easter message. But uh, don't worry, it's going to be a springtime message. In fact, we're actually going to talk about the Passover also, which began when? Uh, Noad, Sharon, Peggy, and John are excluded from answering that question. When did the Passover begin? Anybody know? Very good. Yeah, Friday, Friday evening. And uh, for those of you that are uninformed, it's not just a day. It lasts about a week. So we're, we're still in the Passover now. Uh, Psalm 23, we're actually, just to get you uh, prepared here, we're studying through the book of Luke here at Calvary Bible Chapel, and we're uh, in chapter 9 right now, and so we're going to pick up where we left off last week. Uh, You'll see why we're looking at Psalm 23 first in just a moment. Psalm 23, probably everybody here knows it, just the first three verses. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me to lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside the still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in the paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Okay, now turn over to Luke chapter 9. See if you can see any parallels with the verses we just read here in this passage in Luke. It's the feeding of the 5,000. Luke 9, we'll begin reading in verse 10. And the apostles, when they had returned, told him all that they had done. Then he took them and went aside privately into a deserted place belonging to the city called Bethsaida. But when the multitudes knew it, they followed him. And he received them and spoke to them about the kingdom of God and healed those who had need of healing. When the day began to wear away, the twelve came and said to him, Send the multitude away, that they may go into the surrounding towns and country, and lodge and get provisions, for we are in a deserted place here. But he said to them, You give them something to eat. And they said, We have no more than five loaves and two fish, unless we go and buy food for all these people. For there were about five thousand men. Then he said to his disciples, make them sit down in groups of 50. And they did so and made them all sit down. Then he took the five loaves and the two fish and looking up to heaven, he blessed and broke them and gave them to the disciples to set before the multitude. So they all ate and were filled. And 12 baskets of the leftover fragments were taken up by them. Wouldn't it have been great to have been there? <laughs> uh, okay, uh, Luke and I, we preached on this really not too long ago. And when you're confronted with a passage that's just been preached on, you always wonder what the Lord's going to do this time around. He always gives you something fresh. And uh, this passage is actually found in all four Gospels. Not all the passages are like that. And so... 
As I said before, when you study the Bible, one of the first things you want to do is read the passage and then read the passage and then read the passage. And when you're done with that, finally, you can read the passage again. (laughs) And as I did that in all four of the Gospels, I got such a picture of this scene um, that uh, Psalm 23 kept coming to my mind, particularly those first three verses. And you'll see why as we go through it here. But um, it's a beautiful pastoral scene. It takes place right at Passover. So it's the same time of year as we have right now. Um, And it's a beautiful picture as the Lord is our shepherd. And that's what we're going to look at this morning. If you want a title, the title of it is The Lord is My Shepherd. So we'll do that. We'll just break it down into into five sections here based on those passages in Psalm 23. And I think you'll see how they uh, come out of this wonderful uh, picture in uh, Luke chapter 9. First of all, um, we don't do this uh, all the time, but it's a good time here. Get some use out of that Bible map you have in the back of your Bible. Okay, go back and look at a map of New Testament times or uh, Palestine or Israel in the time of Jesus, something like that. Should have the Sea of Galilee at the top and uh, Israel laid out and so on. You got that? If you don't have one, look at a neighbor. If you're really desperate, lean over and look at the person in front of you. Whatever it takes. You see that? You got it now, everybody? Yeah? See, by the way, this is, this is an advertisement for the need to use the big room in there. Because we're going to have a screen... And I'll be able to just point to it on, on, the, on the wall. But uh, until then, you're going to have to use your map. All right. Now, at the very top of your map or near the top, you should see the Sea of Galilee. Or it'll say uh, Gennesaret or Kenneth or something like that. Right? Everybody knows where the Sea of Galilee is. You got that? Okay. Now, at the top of it, near the, on the left side, you should see Capernaum. Everybody have Capernaum? Okay. Now, some of you may have to the right on the other side of the Jordan River, Bethsaida. You have that, everybody? Yes? Okay, if you don't have it, it's on the other side of the Jordan River, right next to where the Jordan flows into the Sea of Galilee. Okay? Now, I want you to picture in your mind's eye. That's where we are this morning. Right there, but not in the town of Bethsaida, outside of it, because it said they were at a place that belonged to the city of Bethsaida. The point it is, point is, it's out in the middle of nowhere. Right next to the Jordan, near the shores of the Sea of Galilee. You got it now? Kind of got a picture it in your minds, kind of picture it in your mind's eye. The Jordan is not like the Mississippi. Okay? Jordan's a fairly small river, but it's fairly fresh from Mount Hermon, which is up north there. Snow fed, beautiful, Clear water coming down into the lake. That's the picture of this scene. Lots of grass. Beautiful uh, setting for a picnic, in fact. Ideal. That's, that's where we are. All right, you with me now? Kind of keep that image in your mind because uh, that's the uh, scene we're going to be looking at here as we go through it. Uh, and for these folks here, these 5,000 plus women and children, Jesus was a shepherd for a day. Shepherd for a day. Is he your shepherd? 
Amen. Now, you can't make that claim if you don't know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. Do you know that? He is not your shepherd if you don't know him. But if you do, you have the marvelous privilege of having him caring for you on a day-by-day basis. He can do that because he's risen from the dead, as we heard this morning. Okay, Uh, so we're going to look at uh, several qualities or activities from Psalm 23 that are applied here. The first uh, uh, picture, of course, was the, the first verse after the Lord is my shepherd. I shall not what? What? I shall not want. Do you see that here in this passage? The picture of not wanting. What happened when they were done eating? Twelve baskets full of leftovers. It's a beautiful picture of the provision of the Lord. And I can testify, you know, one of the reasons God keeps old guys around like me is because after I've known the Lord for 40 years now. And I can say like Joshua when he came to the end of his life, you know, not one good uh, word of the Lord has failed. I can tell you that. Right, Howard? Amen. And Kathy? And uh, I can say I have never wanted, ever. He has provided, first, just physical uh, needs, uh, food on the table, clothing, um, enough money to give back to him since week one. He's provided uh, an overflow, just like the 12 baskets full. Uh, many of you know about the intern program uh, that they used to have at Fairhaven. My, my wife and I went through it uh, together. Yeah, the guys and the girls go through it when they do it. And during that time, I quit my job for nine months. And to this day, I, I don't know where the money came from because we hadn't saved up for it. Had you? No. Uh, it, 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 Jesus multiplied the money for us the way he multiplied the loaves and the fish. Here, he's like that. And I'm sure we could spend the day having people come up and testify to the Lord's faithfulness in providing so that I do not want. There's a wonderful thing, too, about being a believer in Jesus Christ. You know what it is? When you come to Jesus, suddenly your wants just dwindle. It's it's an amazing thing. You know, uh, for 25 years, I had this... I don't know, need for something. I couldn't put my finger on it. But there was a, a want, a craving, a need. And I searched everywhere like Solomon in the book of Ecclesiastes. I tried everything. And let me tell you, I was going to Cal Berkeley in the 60s. I tried everything. Okay? And every time I'd come up empty, man, Solomon puts it so well. You know what he says? It's like chasing the wind. Isn't that good? You ever try running after the wind and trying to grab it? You can't. And it was frustrating. Let me tell you, I got saved the Saturday after Easter, 1972, almost exactly 40 years ago. That very moment when I trusted Christ, that that craving stopped. It just stopped. And it hasn't come back. And I can see some nodding in here. Yeah, you can relate. Once, once you come to Christ and you have him, the searching stops. 
It it sounds awfully narrow-minded. I know. I'm sorry. Okay? But listen, uh, once I found Jesus, I'm not looking anymore. I, I do not want. Okay? Can you relate to that? He satisfies. I shall not want. Jesus put it right. You know, Jesus, uh, he created all things. And he created water. But you know, water even has its shortcomings. <laughs> Jesus said it himself. By the way, uh, I'm going to have a lot of illustrations here from uh, out of doors, backpacking and, and so on. Uh, my wife and I, believe it or not, used to be big backpackers. Spent a lot of time in Yosemite and so on. But um, there's nothing like a drink of cold water when you're really thirsty. Is there? I mean, it's better than Pepsi, better than beer. You know, a nice. I remember one time we were uh, just hiking up in Yosemite, going up to Yosemite Falls, and it was still springtime. And so there was still snow in the shadows and up on the higher elevations. And there were all of these ice cold springs just running down the mountainside, right over the trail as you went along. So like every hundred yards, you know, we'd stop and just get a, a cup full of this ice water. Oh, it was so good. You know, but like Jesus said, he who drinks of this water shall thirst again. And he's right. That's the problem with water. <laughs> Isn't it? And we'd be going along, you know, and, and, and you just have that nice drink and your thirst is quenched. But a few minutes later, you're thirsty again. But that was okay because there was another stream, you see. But that was it. You know, we take a drink. Ah, feels great. You know, you go walking, you get thirsty again. So you drink some more. I just had a drink of water yesterday. I had a drink this morning. It's not going to stop. There's a problem with water. No, Jesus is trying to teach us something like he did the woman at the well, you see. He said, you drink this water, you're going to get thirsty again. But you drink the water I've got to give and you won't thirst ever again. That's what he's talking about. I shall not want. Jesus satisfies. You had your thirst quenched by Jesus. He alone satisfies the soul, you see. It's soul thirst. And he satisfies it forever. Uh, Next, uh, Psalm 23 says, He makes me to lie down in green pastures, and he leads me beside the still waters. That's a beautiful picture. Leads me beside the still waters. Makes me to lie down in green pastures. It's a beautiful picture of peace and tranquility. Lying down in green pastures. Uh, When I read that, you know, I think of the uh, one of the last phrases of uh, the wonderful relationship between God and his creation in Genesis. It's a wonderful verse. They had just partaken of the fruit, Adam and Eve. And it says, they heard the sound of the Lord walking in the garden in the cool of the evening. Isn't that cool? Isn't that neat? What a wonderful, close relationship. Well, our sin destroyed that peace. Your sin. But Jesus restored it at the cross. And through his resurrection. And so now 
as our shepherd, if you know Jesus Christ as your shepherd, he makes you to lie down in green pastures and lead you beside the still waters. And um, if you read the feeding of the 5,000 in all four, all four Gospels, man, is it ever a picture of the green pastures and the still waters. Um, as I said, right now, think of it. The time here is springtime. It's the Passover. Here they are. It's a big grassy area. When they say, uh, have them sit down here in uh, verse 14, in Matthew 14, it says he had them sit down on the grass. In Mark, it says he had them sit down on the green grass. And he doesn't have to add the word green. We know what color grass is. But he put it there to give us a picture of the beautiful, uh, peaceful, calm. Look, if you were there and you said, let's go find a place to picnic, you pick this place. Okay. Uh, John says, and there was much grass there. The place at this time was it was a huge grassy plain with little creeks and streams all over the place coming down from Mount Hermon and, and flowing into the Jordan as it went down into the Sea of Galilee. Um, this, is, this one's for Peggy. I don't know if Peggy's here. If I say John. Okay. Uh, because it's a wonderful little picture in Mark chapter 6 where he talks about this. It says, Jesus had them sit down in ranks. And if you look at that, and you don't do it right now, but if you look at it in your Bible, it's a very unusual word. It's the only place in the, in the Bible where the word in the Greek appears. And the word is literally flower beds. Isn't that interesting? Now, he didn't have them sit in the flower beds. Okay, there weren't any. But when they sat down in their little bunches, you see, here they are in their colorful spring clothing, ready to go down to the Passover, by the way. They're, a lot of them are heading down to Jerusalem for the Passover in their beautiful, bright uh, raiment. At a distance, you'd see these clusters of color as they sat in their groups, do you understand, being ready to be fed by Jesus. It's a beautiful, like little flower beds, you see. Isn't that cool? He had them sit down like little batches of flower beds. Um, <clears throat> this is the same area where Jesus preached, you know, uh, the passage. He said, consider the lilies of the field. I don't know why they translate it lilies. They're not lilies. Okay. They're probably either anemone. I need my daughter and my wife up here for this. Uh, there are poppies there. Um, oh, yeah, yellow chrysanthemums. It, the the hills are awash with color in the springtime. So, and that's the same time of year. Anyway, remember Jesus said, consider the lilies of the field. I tell you, Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed as one of these. You ever looked at a flower up close? It's beautiful, isn't it? And that's what Jesus said. You think those flowers are pretty. Man, they put Solomon to shame. They're so beautiful. So that's the picture here. They're sitting down, much grass, plenty of water. If you wonder what they wash down the bread and the fish with, that's it. It's this uh, cold mountain uh, uh, snow melt that uh, is flowing through there. By the way, Mount Hermon's 9,200 feet high. Did you know that? I think people think of Israel. Yeah, they got these little dinky hills. Well, just up north, Mount Hermon's over 9,000 feet. It's snow-capped pretty much year-round. So that's, that's the picture 
uh, as I read this, I thought of a, a great trip I took with my brother up in Yosemite. You ever been to Tuolumne Meadows? Tuolumne Meadows is up north, up on the high country, and it's about eight or 9,000 feet. And he and I went off the trail and found this place. It was just covered with thick grass. When we pitched our tent, we didn't even need to lay on the inside. It was so soft. And flowing right through this meadow that we stayed in for a couple of days was this uh, stream about uh, 15, 20 feet wide, about six feet deep, and it was so clear you could see everything inside the stream. And it had a sandy bottom all up. Isn't that sound ideal? Let me tell you, it was. It was in the 90s outside, and we spent the whole time in, in the water. It was so nice. And then on top of that, there were trout in there. Yeah. You know, all about like this. And you could see them. They, they were in the shade. And, and they just, we, we had a string like this that we ate every night of trout. It was a picture of this, you know. I had just been saved to I was just worshiping God all over the place in that setting. That's, that's kind of the picture it is here. So if you think about it, way back at the beginning, before they got here, look at verse 10. Remember, the apostles had just gone out. He's training them. He's sending them out. They've been preaching the kingdom of God. They come back. They're probably glad to be home, so to speak, Right. They start telling Jesus all these stories. You can imagine what they had to tell. And then it says, Then he took them and went aside privately into a deserted place belonging to the city called Bethsaida. So they're thinking, oh, great. Now we can relax, you know. Here we are going out in these grassy fields and away from the towns and villages and to be alone with the Lord. Jesus, I'll tell you right now, Jesus knew ahead of time what was going to happen. He knew the multitude was following him. Uh, By the way, just an aside, another uh, section that reminds me of Psalm 23. In one of the other Gospels, this is the passage when the disciples have come to Jesus and they're all ready for a nice rest and go aside and have a picnic and the multitudes have been following them. And the, multi- and, and the disciples say, oh, send him away, Lord. Look, we just want to be with you for now. And it says this about Jesus. It says, when he saw the multitudes, he was moved with compassion because he saw them as sheep without a shepherd. That's the heart of Jesus, you see, the shepherd. And so you have the heart of the disciples, which is get those guys out of here. And Jesus, who can't say no, when it comes to people who are in need and his heart just goes out to them. And so he's their shepherd for a day. Well, <clears throat> uh, that's a lesson that the Lord is going to teach the disciples here. Uh, we're talking about peace and tranquility. And uh, the Lord's going to kind of put that aside and they're not going to get their peace and tranquility because the crowd's going to come and they're, and they're going to have to feed them. I had a taste of this, you know, if you know the Lord, you know, there are times when you just like to say, I want to go off and roll up in a ball and get away from people. You ever had that? Maybe not. I have, you know, and that's the way the disciples felt. But Jesus is going to teach them, look, you can't choose the time when people are in need. It's going to happen when it happens. And if you know Jesus, you've got to be ready 
to help them whenever and wherever. And so there's going to be a little stretch, and we'll talk about this more later. But uh, my wife and I had a taste of this not long after we were married, and then we got saved. As you've learned, we were children of nature. We were big backpackers. You know, we love, love the woods. To this day, we love going up to the redwoods up, up north. It's kind of like a pilgrimage. And uh, we uh, were thinking of moving up there right after getting saved. This wasn't the Lord's leading. Let me tell you that. Okay. We, we could have, we probably could have, you know, explained it around to make it the Lord's will somehow. You know, people do that. You know, you find a place you want to move and then you come up with a reason why God led you there instead of the other way around. But uh, we found this plot of land, 10 acres back behind Arcata. It had it had everything. It was up kind of on a hill, but in the redwoods, in the trees. But you had a view of the ocean also. I mean, it had everything. It was just beautiful. It had been graded. It had water, electricity and gas. All ready to go. All I had to do was build a little cabin on it. And uh, we went down to the realtor. I was sitting at the desk. We came this close to moving up there and retreating from civilization. But we didn't have a piece about it. The Lord was shepherding us, you see. And he was letting us know, you need to wait for that, okay? Wait until you get to the city that has foundations. And so... We talked about it, we prayed about it, and we just said, no, I think the Lord wants it down here in the concrete and asphalt of the Bay Area. And so that's where we've been. I'm not regretting it, by the way. Praise God. Okay. But uh, I can relate, you know. <clears throat> but if you know Jesus, look, Jesus wants you around the people. He wants you where the people are and working with the people and helping. <clears throat> and by the way, um, now, don't get the idea that, and if you're a Christian, you know this isn't true, that uh, being a Christian means every day is just, you know, like this scene here. No troubles, no worries, no problems, no storms. Is that, is that a guarantee to Christians, by the way, when you get that? <laughs> no. For example, they that live in, uh, godly in Christ shall, shall suffer persecution in fact uh, christians uh, have to learn that uh, trials and troubles and anxieties and tests and tribulations are things that god uses those are some of his main tools in his toolbox to mold us into the image of christ so get used to it right but in the i don't care what the storm is or what the troubles are in the midst of it we still have Peace. Right? We should. The, look, the classic picture of peace in the middle of a storm is we just studied it a few weeks ago here in the book of Luke <clears throat> where they're on the Sea of Galilee and it's incredible. It's such a storm that these seasoned fishermen think they're going to drown. It's that bad. And in the midst of all this, what's Jesus doing? Can you imagine? He's sleeping. In the same boat they're in. Can you imagine that? And of course, their classic line, you know, Lord, don't you care that we're dying? You know, <clears throat> you know what the key verse is in that section? The key verse is something Jesus said before they got into the boat. 
Jesus said to them, let's get in the boat and let us go to the other side. That's all they need. You realize that? Jesus said, let us go to the other side. I don't care how high the waves are going to get and how strong that wind is going to blow. You know what's going to happen? They're going to get to the other side. Why? Because Jesus said so, you see. And they'd forgotten that, you know. <clears throat> they're, they're at a junction here. It's storming. The boat is going every which way. There's water coming inside. And they're saying, we're perishing. But on the other hand, Jesus said, let's go to the other side. You got a choice. Either you're going to die or you're going to get to the other side. Which is it? Well, Jesus said this one. Okay. So you can go to the bank on that. All right. And so they could have been asleep with them if they'd wanted. But that's a picture or it should be a picture of you and me, brother and sister. I don't care what the storm is. Listen, Jesus has already said to you when you got on the boat with him, we're going to cross over to the other side. Didn't he? If I go away, I'll prepare a place for you. And if I go away, I will come again and receive you to myself. He's going to meet you on the other side. You believe that? Okay, he didn't raise from the dead for nothing. He's coming back. You know, I, I know... Uh, Unbelievers make, make jokes about Christians saying, oh, yeah, Jesus is coming back. Ha, ha, ha. You know, Second Peter talks about that, scoffers and so on. One of these days, it's no longer going to be future tense. It's going to be Jesus has returned. OK, look, if uh, Douglas MacArthur can say I shall return and he made it back to the Philippines. <laughs> I think Jesus Christ who said, I shall return, is capable of keeping his word. Okay? He will. And so he said to you, if you know him, I'll meet you on the other side. Okay. By the way, <clears throat> now, when I say that, don't think that I'm alone until I meet him on the other side. The cool thing is, he's also with me right now as my shepherd. He's with you. Isn't that cool? He's with you. What does he say? Lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the world. I think that covers just about every situation. Okay. Praise God. <clears throat> okay, the fourth one. <clears throat> uh, he restores my soul. You ever think about that phrase? He restores my soul. It's talking about spiritual healing. Now, here in the passage... There was physical healing. And I like the way it, it says it in verse 11. Jesus, when he saw the multitude, it doesn't say it like this in any other passage of healing. It says, he healed those who had need of healing. Isn't that neat? It, it's different from the other ones. It, it, it kind of sounds like Jesus just went through the crowd, you know? How you doing? You know, how you feeling? And one by one, until when he's done, everybody is in perfect health. You could send a doctor through that crowd and every one of them would get A-OK, 100%. Isn't that great? But as our shepherd, it's, it's, uh, of course, he does heal us of our diseases too when there is healing. But it's spiritual healing he's talking about in Psalm 23. The shepherd who heals, he restores my soul. 
He's sensitive to my spiritual infirmities, to your spiritual infirmities. Including results of sin. I sin. Fellowship is broken. You know? What did David say um, when he finished his uh, Psalm of Confession, Psalm 51, after he committed the sin with Bathsheba? He says, Restore unto me the joy of your salvation. Restore. There's that word again. We, we sin. We break fellowship with God. And we're... If you're if you if you're not a Christian, it, it doesn't bother you that much, okay. But let me tell you, if you're thinking of becoming a Christian, get ready to uh, being miserable when you sin, okay. You don't like it. It's not fun. It's not pleasant. There's that loss of joy, and you can sense it's like a father and a son, you know. But the wonderful thing is, David prays at the end of his confession. He says, "Restore." unto me heal me restore my soul that's a valid prayer by the way you know sometimes we'll confess sin and we'll say man that's the hundredth time i've confessed that i don't think the lord's going to be able to forgive me no 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 no. if we confess our sins he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness so if you still feel the lack of uh, joy pray that's scriptural david said lord Restore to me the joy of your salvation. <clears throat> if you're a believer here, you know what I'm talking about. You ever experience sorrow and then the good shepherd's comfort? Yeah. Fear or worry and then a peace that he gives? Like he says, a peace that the world can't give. Discouragement and he encourages. I know several examples just in this assembly, in fact, of people who experienced discouragement. And you know what? The Lord prepared them by encouraging them beforehand. He's like that. He'll often, he won't wait, you know, until the discouragement. He'll encourage you first, you know, kind of buoy you up. He's like that. He restores my soul. Uh, and then finally, he leads me in the paths of righteousness for his name's sake. And that's in here too. Leads me in the paths of righteousness for his name's sake. What does that mean? Well, first of all, let's look at a couple of words. He leads. Jesus leads. That means he directs and I follow. Okay, that's the first thing. He leads. Secondly, it says in the paths of righteousness. It doesn't just say, it's very interesting. It doesn't just say he leads us in righteousness, but in the paths of righteousness. It's a specific step-by-step direction. It's not random. That's the idea, you see. He carefully leads us along step by step. Uh, We see that in the passage, both of the multitudes and the disciples leading in the paths of righteousness. To begin with, with the multitudes, the poor multitudes, I'll tell you, um, when you read all of the gospel accounts, they're, they're running all over the place. Jesus does something in Capernaum and then he goes over to the Gadarenes and they go running around the lake. Some of them take boats. He comes back. They come running back. He takes the disciples up here to Bethsaida. They go running up there. Is Isaiah 53, 6 a perfect picture of what? All we like sheep have gone astray. We've turned everyone to his own way. They're wandering. They're they're aimless. But then 
when we come to Christ, he leads us in the paths of righteousness. There's no more wandering. There's no, no more aimlessness. And so as he sees this, this kind of aimless multitude seeking something, they know it has something to do with Jesus. It says he spoke to them about the kingdom of God. Trying to draw them to the kingdom of God. I wish the story had a happy ending, and it, and it did for some. But uh, if you read on later, they're going to go running after him again. And it, it's not because they want Jesus as their Lord so much as they want the fringe benefits. You know, if you're seeking God, if your motive is just to, you know, get a free ticket or, you know, fix your marriage or get you a job or make you rich or whatever, forget it. That's not what you need. You need a savior from your sin. And that's what they needed. And so after the feeding, he, he just, uh, they asked him, they said, Lord, how did you get over here? That's their question. He said, look, you're not seeking me because of uh, the miracle. You're seeking because your bellies were filled. You need to seek the right thing, which is eternal life, which I can give. So he, he was still leading them, you see, in the path of righteousness, trying to get them to get down that, that path and come to him the right way. <clears throat> and uh, finally, we'll end with him leading the disciples down the paths of righteousness. I love this. Uh, first, he begins, school's never out when you're a disciple of Christ. And here they come back. We already talked about it a little bit. They're tired. They're ready to be with Jesus and talk about all the stories they have to tell when they went out preaching and healing and, and uh, all the things that happened. And, uh, and here comes this crowd, and they're deprived of their rest. Jesus knows this. Okay. He's stretching them. We need to learn endurance. Uh, Paul uses a good illustration of the Christian life uh, in 2 Timothy. He talks about the parallel with being a soldier. He says, endure hardness as a soldier of Jesus Christ. You know, when they train soldiers, uh, people always talk about boot camp and how tough it is. You know why it is? Because when you get out there and you're facing bullets coming at you and people trying to kill you, and you have a buddy whose life depends on your being able, in spite of how scared and how uh, fearful and maybe how tired you are, you've got to rise to the occasion right now and do what it takes. That's why they do that. They wear out guys in boot camp so that they don't poop out when it comes to the battlefield. And Paul says that's the way it should be with us believers. You know, stretch yourself. Be ready to endure hardness like a good soldier. You never know when you're going to be called upon by God to help someone. Doesn't it always seem, you know, it's when you're at your tiredest <laughs> or your weakest, you know, that uh, the big problems hit. It's not an accident. He wants to stretch us. I'll tell you, when you get to heaven, you're going to look back and say, man, I miss those days of being stretched because they're going to be gone, you know? And uh, I love it. He, the second thing is he stretched their faith. He was stretching their endurance, and then he stretched their faith. When the crowd comes and it's getting late and they're miles away from the nearest villages, 
they say, send them out so they can get something to eat. And it's so wonderful. Verse 13, he looks at them and he says, you give them something to eat. I want you to think about that. Imagine being a disciple here at this point, And Jesus looks you in the face and says, you give them something to eat. <laughs> Why does he do that? It's to get them to sense the full impact of the moment and the need and their helplessness. You see. That we can know in our head certain things, but it's not until it really hits home experientially that we really understand some things. And I think when he said that and they began to think about it, I think that's when they really understood there's absolutely nothing they can do. And so they're learning a lesson. He's leading them in the paths of righteousness right there. He's teaching them, apart from me, you can do what? Nothing. Nothing. Thank you. Have you finally learned that lesson, by the way? <laughs> apart from Jesus, you can do nothing? I haven't. I'm still learning it. You know, he's, he's constantly putting us in positions where we can't do anything. And to this very day, I have to confess, I'll still take up the challenge, you know, and try doing it my way until finally, you know, the weight gets so bad, I say, Lord, help. And in his mercy and his grace, he comes in again, you know, as he did, did here, leading uh, in the paths of righteousness. He never wearies of teaching us. That's a wonderful way to learn, though, being confronted. Uh, with uh, the weight of the issues. And finally, uh, on this area of um, leading in the path of righteousness, he even uses discipline. <clears throat> Psalm 23 talks about <clears throat> the, the uh, rod and the staff. Those are things that the shepherd would use, you know, to get the sheep to go where they wanted him to go, you know, and he does that too. Even the rod, you know, whack, you know says uh, in, in Hebrews that uh, when he disciplines this, it's not pleasant for the moment. You can say that again. But it goes on to say, but in the end, it yields the peaceable fruit of righteousness. He's a great shepherd. And then finally, that uh, verse in um, Psalm 23 said he does it for his name's sake. I'm glad it doesn't say just for my sake, you know. He does it for the most solid reason in the universe, his own name. That's why he does it. There's a great verse in uh, one of the hymns. We're not going to sing it in closing, but the, the hymn Day by Day talks about this. And I think the, the, the poet that wrote the words caught it well. He says, the protection of his child and treasure is a charge that on himself he laid. You got that? You understand that? The protection of his child and treasure, that's you, brother and sister, is a charge that on himself he laid. That's scriptural. That's why I quoted it. In other words, he voluntarily assumed the responsibility of caring for you and for me. He volunteered to be shepherd. Nobody twisted his arm. Okay. So, the Lord is my shepherd. Is he your shepherd? 
What a, what a wonderful Savior and what a wonderful shepherd. Let's pray. Lord, how wonderful it is to be able to say, the Lord is my shepherd. And Lord, what a loving, faithful shepherd you are. We, we who know you can testify to your wonderful, gentle touch in our lives as you guide us along and care for us, provide for us daily, restore our souls, uh, lead us beside the still waters, cause us to lie down in green pastures, lead us in the paths of righteousness. You're so faithful. Lord, how we thank you and how great it is not just to say the Lord is my shepherd, but to experience it day by day. Lord, we, we who know you just pray that um, day by day we might make it a pleasure for you to be shepherding us, that there might be less of the need of the rod and the staff, but rather just a gentle word as we follow you. We ask it in your precious name. Amen.